Adam, Adam, wake up. Mm, what? I had the dream again. About the podcast? Oh, Adam, it was terrible. There was so much editing, so much stress about booking, so many ludicrously niche convos about every minute detail of a comic book from 30 years ago that was never popular to begin with. Week after week after week, hundreds of episodes, countless hours. D don't worry, babe. It's just a dream. No one would ever listen to hundreds of episodes of a weekly podcast about X-Men comics, let alone Excalibur comics. You're perfectly safe. We both are. Oh, you're right. You're right. Just go back to sleep. Oh my god. Adam. Adam, wake up. Wake up. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm awake. What? I had the dream again. About the podcast? I dreamed I never booked, scripted, or edited a hundred episodes of a silly yet somehow award-winning comics podcast about a cult favorite X-Men series with two of my smartest, bestest friends and lots more smarty pants friends besides. It was like all those hours dissecting the precise dimensions of Kurt Wagner's sexiness never even existed. Oh, Adam, it was terrible. Don't worry, babe. Everyone loves Excalibur, and the market for X-Men podcasts is infinite. I'm sure Gosh Golly Well exists throughout the multiverse. You, you really think so? I know so. Relieved sigh. Then here's to 26 more. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur! Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are fetting the mega-sized Excalibur number 100, London's Burning, an Onslaught event tie-in that doesn't have much to do with Onslaught but does have lots to do with witches and hellfire and demons and Douglocks and Mommy's Dearest doing lots of fiery murders. Excalibur number 100 was originally published in August 1996 and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Casey Jones, Randy Green and Rob Haynes on pencils. I forgot there were so many names. Tom Simon, <laughs> Tom Simons, Jason Martin, Rick Ketchum, and Rob Haynes on inks. Ariane Lenshock, Jim Hostin, and Malibu Color on colors. Richard Starkings and Commoncraft on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney on editing.
welcome back for an onslaught of conversation about onslaught as usual. I am kidding, but I'm sure we'll discuss them a little. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. You can typically find me in a mishmash of academic and popular places yammering on about sexy, gendery stuff in comics and pop culture. This includes the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I are probably wrapping up a unit on TMNT The Last Ronin and preparing to launch a unit on Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey's Young Avengers series. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager and in that capacity I'm demanding some consistency in the rendering of his new stage outfit which experiences some interesting <laughs> transformations over the course of this issue I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit moving on I am joined as always by Mav how are you doing here at the century mark I'm doing way better I've, you know I found a replacement person to install my garage so like I can get in and out of my garage and park my car now that's lovely thank you um, for updating a, us on the saga yeah, of your garage, guy was great Mike. not sexist at all it was really lovely it was awesome so, <laughs> so so you know but you know the other guy screw that guy beyond that I've been doing a lot of home repair work you know, summer is great as an academic because like there's like my house was falling apart in many ways and I've been fixing a lot of those these last <laughs> few weeks even even though that I'm also like teaching I still have like my regular job and I've got some other projects that I'm supposed to be working on that like are you know research-based but but mostly it's been like hey fixed my garage now I get to paint it you know <laughs> like that's it that's what Great. I've been doing and you know and I and I realize that's not really what you're asking when you're asking you know, what are you up to but you know it's what I've been doing like theoretically I should be working on you know a book project and an abstract for a, a conference and like all kinds of stuff that I should be doing but no I'm you know painting my garage I installed a new light <laughs> doing doing some home automation that kind of thing that's what I've been up to well congratulations <laughs> oh and I guess I should say what I do yeah I, I teach at University of Pittsburgh and I host another podcast called Fox Pop. You know, you, I, I, this is like the this is like our hundredth issue plus like a lot of special episodes. I know you I know, know who I am. <laughs> maybe maybe people jump in for anniversary. I've never tried Gosh Golly Wow before. I'll start with issue <laughs> one hundred. That makes sense. Sure, I don't know. Everybody's got to jump on somewhere. I don't know. I can't predict what the listeners are going to do. They're ungovernable. <laughs> Andrew, what's your centennial mood? I'm, I'm doing good. I'm taking reaching 100 issues of Excalibur signaling that we're like in the home stretch of this project, which is cool because I still do not understand how Anna makes this work each and every week. Even just the idea of like scheduling four academics to be in the same time uh, in an mm -hmm. online environment is mind boggling to me. So not barely, anything, Andrew. I think... Barely is the answer. <laughs> oh, Again, not jinxing, but I think we're going to make it uh, unless Adam has been secretly luring Anna to ditch us for Battle of the Atom. Uh, other than that, I don't think anything can hurt us at this point. We're doing One good. of us is going to get struck by lightning or something because you said that. Oh, it's going to be like <laughs> 125 issues and it'd be unfinished. <laughs> oh, and I'm Andrew DeMann, lecturer at St. Jerome's University and co-project lead for Sequential Scholar. See, it's easy to forget. Who's doing... <laughs> Who's doing some great threads about TMNT right now. Really been enjoying them. It's a franchise I know nothing about, so I am not really contributing, but I've been very much enjoying learning about it, Andrew, so I'm very grateful. Thank you. Um, you don't have to laugh. That was a genuine compliment. Accept it. <laughs> okay. I'm told I'm bad at that, but okay. You're welcome. Anyway, um, we are aided in today's celebratory centenary conversation by a returning guest who last joined us for our last milestone issue and requested this one at that time. I wasn't sure if we'd make it, but we did make it. The pod is thrilled to welcome back Dr. Andrew Kunko. Welcome, Andy. 
Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about uh, the 100th issue. We're so excited to chat with you about it. I'll give you a little bio and we'll get right into it. Dr. Andrew Kunka is professor of English at the University of South Carolina, Sumter. He's the author of Autobiographical Comics from the Bloomsbury Comics Studies series and the Eisner Award-nominated book, The Life and Comics of Howard Cruz, Taking Risks in the Service of Truth, published by Rutgers University Press. He has also published on Will Eisner, Kyle Baker, Jack Katz, and crime comics, among many, many other topics. He also serves as the Comics Studies Society Ombudsman, as well as the book review editor for Inks, the Journal of the Comic Studies Society. If you're a comic scholar out there and you're not submitting your work to Inks, start doing so. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful journal. Now, Andy, you warned us when we recorded number 50 with you, and you reminded me when I was booking this one that you had a, and I'm quoting you here, terrible Warren Ellis story to tell. I thought, since we've already done your comics origin story, let's just kick off with that. What is your Warren Ellis story, Andy? Tell us about it. Just to, to preface, you know, this, you know, there, you've already talked about the Warren Ellis, you know, issues uh, surrounding his, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, his behavior. And so I, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I just want to, you know, let everybody relax a bit. I'm not going to rehash any of that stuff. But I do find this story kind of relevant to some of the things I want to talk about with um, Ellis's work on this issue anyway. And, um, you know, forgive me if this, this story gets a little too long. I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> but we're actually coming up now when we're recording this on, on Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, which will be this coming weekend, the 15th through the 18th. And my this story goes back to uh, Heroes Con 2006. And I don't know if uh, how much you are all aware or listeners are all aware. At that time, Wizard World was planning on having Wizard World Atlanta on the same weekend at Hero as Heroes Con. And Heroes Con has got a reputation for being a great and still is a great pure comics convention. Uh, it's really celebratory of the creators. There aren't, you know, celebrities or, or any of the other kind of things that go on in so-called comic conventions like the kind of things that that wizard world does and a lot of creators in the comics industry felt like wizard world announcing an atlanta show a few hours away from charlotte north carolina was a kind of attempt to draw away an audience or, or kind of undermine heroes con so a bunch of creators came to the defense of heroes con and and promise to be guests that wouldn't normally have been there and so it turned into a huge uh, a huge convention much much bigger than heroes con had been before and creators like j michael straczynski greg rucka and uh, brian hitch and some others came who weren't going who weren't normally there but one of the biggest draws was that warren ellis announced that he was this was going to be his only north american appearance that year Ooh. was at heroes con and they had to set up like a special area for him to do a signing. You had to wait, you know, several hours to, to get in line. But one of the things he was going to do at this show was he was going to do like a spoken word event on uh, one of the nights of the convention. And it had a start time, but it did not have an end time. It had okay. a question mark for the end. So it was going to go as long as, you know, as, as people wanted it to go. And at this time, I was completely in the tank for Warren Ellis's work. I had started with Planetary and loved that book so much and got into The Authority and then went back and 
read some of his earlier stuff, including uh, the run of Excalibur that we're going to talk about today. And so this was really exciting to me. And I was really excited about this, this spoken word event. So my wife had come to uh, Heroes Con with me at this time, even though she's not interested in comics. And this also, for this reason, turned out to be the last comic convention she ever went to. Uh, that's all for Warren Ellis's fault, but we'll get to that. Um, so anyway, so we showed up early to get a good seat for this this spoken word talk that he was going to do. And the room, it's in a huge, it's in a huge ballroom in the hotel. The room is full of people. It's got to have special arrangements so that he can smoke in the room. Um, somebody hands him a 12 pack of Red Bull at the beginning uh, so that, so that he can get going. And he comes out there. And the first thing he says is, if I ever met Harold Bloom, I would punch him in the face. And <laughs> I have no love for Harold Bloom, but he was like 80 years old at the time. Yeah. Was, that, that would not be a fair fight. And and he started talking about things Harold Bloom's uh, said about um, Hamlet and the like introduction of self-consciousness in literature and so on. And, and how that that's what had kind of angered him. And so this kind of started things off as, as for me being kind of, you know, not super happy about what he was going to do. And then he started telling all these stories. And the point of most of the stories seemed to have been that he knew famous people. <laughs> um, he told a story about about Patrick Stewart was supposed to do the voice for an animated Transmetropolitan series. And the point of the story was that he met Patrick Stewart. Oh it wasn't God. anything really interesting about the making of yeah. that. He told another story that he knew Tom Baker. And I kept waiting for the kind of punchline or whatever to these stories. And there, it wasn't there. <laughs> And, and it seemed like the, basically the point of which is, was that he had become such a big enough celebrity now that these are the circles that he was traveling in. Uh, so he did that for a while. Uh, he, he answered audience questions, but we noticed that whenever anybody tried to get up to leave, he would verbally abuse that person until they got out of the room. Oh my God. <laughs> and so remember my wife and I came oh. early to get a good seat. So my wife's like, we have to get out of here. And I'm like, I know we have to get out of here, but we can't because we're in like the third row and we have a long way to go to get out the door. And so we're like, I don't know what to do, but I don't want to stay here either. Like I was so excited about this. And now I was like, this is, this is not what I, what I wanted from this. It became and so, a hostage situation basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so finally somebody in front of us got up and we're like, we're going now. And oh we God. ducked behind them and kind of like got out in their shadows and got out of the room and unscathed. So, so we made it. And apparently this thing went, went into the wee hours of the morning. Oh my um, like, so th this ends up becoming kind of my like breakup story with uh, Warren Ellis's work, because what I kind of was starting to realize was how he either had adapted a persona or has had maybe always had this persona that of you know, of this, this kind of 
you know, like egotistical celebrity figure. You know, I had I had been on the engine even, you know, his his discussion board and and loved the experience of being on there connected with so many other uh other comics people. But so I was I was really 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 into him and then something clicked with this this talk that just kind of turned me off from his uh work from then on i kept buying some of it because i think planetary hadn't finished yet and things like that but from then on i wasn't quite as in the tank for him as i had been prior to that and also then my wife never went to another that's the saddest part (laughs) oh my god that's like a perfect story for really articulating what his celebrity was at that time because that's come Mm -hmm. up a few times on the podcast you know we've talked about the scandals with him and stuff like just emphasizing like this was a really big deal because he was the guy he was like the biggest guy you know around that time because you're saying 2006 and it's like and some people who weren't maybe reading or around then like maybe don't know that but (laughs) that's a really good story for underscoring what a big deal that guy was at that time yeah yeah and it was clear from the audience reaction too that he uh, and from i mean being on the engine you saw this too that he had he had not only developed but really kind of cultivated a a sycophantic following i remember one one of the things he talked a lot about was the influence of reading philip k dick and michael moorcock and that was all really interesting and then during the question and answer session a guy gets up and saying you know despite your love of dick and moorcock what else you know what else do you like or something like that and the audience laughed and he did not like even (laughs) snicker at that (laughs) because somebody else had you know like some he'd gotten burned by somebody in the audience that's a solid joke though come on Well, let me, can I ask you a little bit more about Ellis's work? I mean, you said that's your breakup with him, but I mean, yeah. are you willing to talk a little bit about what kind of drew you to his work? Yeah. I mean, I like, I love planetary and was hooked on that from the, I think the first collection, basically those, those first six issues and mm. the whole concept of, of that series was really like kind of white right in my wheelhouse that all these these kind of fictional you know playing around with all these these adventure fiction tropes not just in comics but elsewhere and like uh pulp adventures and stuff but you know that that was a series that i i felt could have been one of the greatest series of all time except it, it ended up being horribly compromised by its lateness and more more so than any other series that's late because it felt like it was meant to it needed to conclude at the year 2000 because it was meant to be a kind of commentary on the closing of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century with Elijah Snow being one of the like what was it millennium babies or century babies century babies and so because it went so long into the 21st century I felt like it changed into something else than what it was originally intended to be so if it had you know done its run in the time that you know in in time for the beginning of the 21st century i think it would have it would be today a book that we we talk about a lot more than we do yeah but also in reading ellis and then then going back to excalibur and this will get us into i think this this issue too is that you know you've talked about on 
the podcast about how Ellis has certain kind of tropes and character types and, and concerns that he keeps coming back to. But what I experienced in coming to Excalibur after reading Planetary and Authority and so on is how Excalibur felt like it was a rough draft for those uh-huh. more than an exploration of those those concerns that, you know, Pete Wisdom's kind of a, a rough draft of Jenny Sparks and, mm-hmm. and um, the uncreated. He's kind of a quirky, he's, kind of, he's kind of half Jenny, half, half Jack. Yeah. The uncreated are like the first antagonists in the, the, the authority series, mm-hmm. you know, where Jenny Sparks announces that they have to go kill God. And so I feel like Ellis's work in Excalibur going into those other, those other later, more well-known works rides a line between this idea of like an author who's, who has certain tropes and concerns that he's working through in his career and an author who, I don't know if like self-plagiarism is the right, right way to phrase it, but something more like an author who becomes more confident later on and decides he had all these good ideas at the beginning of his career that he could do so much better job with. And so he revisits those. Yeah, well, and I mean, him being able to make his own characters too, I mean, that like addresses a lot of the concerns that we've had about characterization in this book, right? And that, you know, he's trying things with characters, but it just isn't consistent with their characters. And I mean, that's the difference between a creator-owned series and a serialized superhero comic, right? Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, with his, you know, his aborted Hellblazer run, Mm -hmm. that he went and reworked the plots that he had for Hellblazer into that series he did for Avatar was called Gravel. I think. Uh, but with Avatar, he could do things that even in Vertigo, he couldn't do, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it isn't, you know, I, I see what you're saying there, Anna. It isn't just taking, you know, taking plots from from the past, but also being able to do something with them that uh, corporate comics wouldn't allow him to do. Anyway, Mav, you were going to jump in with something a minute ago. Andy was making the point about it being, you know, revisiting your work, and he, he called it self-plagiarism, but to his credit, I think that having his own characters and then taking a deeper dive into the concept that he wants to examine sort of moves him away from comic book writer into, you know, auteur territory, right? Like, so arguably, uh, pick a different medium. In, in novel writing, Faulkner wrote one book. He wrote it like six times, but he just <laughs> kept writing the same book over and over again. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, arguably every Scorsese movie, he's dealing with the same basic premises that he's 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 highly invested in the story of mobs and made men and and one might masculinity one might also use the example of academics always writing the same articles and books but i mean not that i know anybody who does that i've never heard of anybody doing that well and and, but i mean it's kind of it's kind of i would say uh, it's a difference that like as comic i'm not gonna say comic scholars as comic readers we sort of expect the opposite there's this thing where people are like oh well you should just be able to write anything you know like there's there's a oh oh, well, I would love to see so-and-so on this book and then on this book and it doesn't matter. But that's not really how things work, right? Like in real life, when you are a creator, when you are a creative, if you are creating, it's because you have a take, right? One of my favorite modern comic writers is Tom King. Tom King's just writing about abandonment issues and mental health struggles over and over again Mm -hmm. in in every (laughs) book. And, And, you know, it sings to me because I've had mental health problems and I've had abandonment problems. Like, like literally, 
really it, there's a reason why I like that. And maybe other people see other things in it, you know, which is fine. But um, I thought Mr. Miracle was brilliant. I also thought his Batman run was brilliant and his Hawkeye run. And, you know, because I will read anything Tom King does because he's just writing the same story over and over again. That's kind of what I like about it. So and he's exploring it from I would say King is growing and I would say problems be damned. Ellis grows as a writer. It's one of the things that I want to talk about today. Ellis grows as a writer throughout Excalibur and certainly from Excalibur into authority and planetary and you know beyond yeah no i don't think there's i don't have any argument there i definitely agree i've enjoyed many of warren ellis's comics like many of us i mean mm-hmm. that like uh, declan shelby warren ellis moon knight still one of my favorite <laughs> short mm-hmm. runs of anything in all of superhero comics so yeah it's difficult some of the conversations we've had on this pod having to reckon with his work and some of the less positive tropes that come up again and again but anyway we've talked about that before let's talk about this issue in particular and we will get into it as usual through a plot summary i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we definitely don't have listener protocols designed to disable you should you decide to turn against us <laughs> or do we in any case here's a plot summary excalibur number 100 opens with london on fire literally and figuratively its residents gripped by demonically spawned hatred and aggression that causes them to turn on each other and their city's historical architecture you'd think this might be onslaught's doing but you'd be wrong it's a different big red baddie skulking deep beneath the cobblestones and tram lines recently awakened by margali sardos's hellfire and black air enabled quest for power excalibur arrive on the scene in the midnight runner intending to confront the hellfire club's inner circle but quickly realize they have bigger problems on their hands not that pete wisdom cares he jumps out of the plane to chase after his arch nemesis scratch meanwhile back at near island moira mctaggart's serious thinking sesh is interrupted by the arrival of an injured amanda sefton who says london is on fire because she couldn't stop her mother coincidentally hot on amanda's heels are the x-men consisting of cyclops jean gray archangel psylocke and cannonball they catch moira up on onslaught related events saying Charles Xavier has gone mad and that they need something that lies in a secret crypt beneath Muir Island to stop him. In the crypt, they find the Xavier Protocols, secret plans on how to kill the X-Men, including Xavier himself. They download the plans and return to the States to deal with Onslaught. Back at the Hellfire Club, Brian Braddock, wearing a new Captain Britain suit, faces the Black Queen, Emma Steed, and Scribe, who is revealed as the shape-changer Mountjoy. Thanks to his suit's improved force field, Brian survives their united attack and stops Mountjoy before he steals another body. Elsewhere, Pete Wisdom and Scratch continue to battle it out, and Scratch almost wins until none other than Lockheed comes to Pete's rescue. In the issue's climax, the other Excalibur members attack the Black Air building. After several mini-battles, they find the final boss, by which I mean Doug Lock, I guess, and are joined by the weekend Amanda. <laughs> With Kitty's computer skills and Amanda's magic, they free Doug Lock and bind the demon in his prison. Margali fades away screaming and will remain off-panel for another two years. Alright. <laughs> so that's, that's how I'm concluding the summary. You might as well. Um, That's not, I mean, brilliant. (laughs) It won't be concluded in this book. We will not be returning to this plot line. 10 out of 10, Um, no notes. Nope. (laughs) You're fine. So I know this isn't your first time reading this comic, Andy, but obviously you're rereading it for the podcast. So hit me with some first impressions. Anything from this comic you're particularly eager to talk about? Well, I think your your summary kind of hit on one of the things I liked about this book and, and thinking about this, especially in relationship to issue 50, the last time I was on the podcast, is your, your summary points out just how the the climax of this book depends on 
every single hero in the team uniquely using their powers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to to get to get to the conclusion to defeat Margali and whatever the the beast is that's under London and the Hellfire Club. You know, and and to the point that I think like Ellis's captions even meant you know say or he has Nightcrawler say, well that's you know two of us who are occupied. There's only the three of us left or whatever as they're as they're going through the Black Air facility. So that really shows for for me Ellis constructing a plot that requires each individual hero and not make them interchangeable and plus one of the other things I like about this issue is how it also feels like the culmination of Ellis's entire run on the series that even though he's got like three more issues left you know the all the major plot lines come into play here the soul sword even the was it Ma megan has to fend off the dream nails brood hybrids and you know and so on so every everything that we've been reading for the last what 17 issues or so is is coming together in this story and i really i really like that but one of the other things that your i think your summary points out that i was thinking about too is is how much in this issue takes place off screen yeah mm -hmm. I, how many how many important things like i i, I made a list um <laughs> of, of the things that we don't like we don't see we don't really see what happens to scratch no. or the red king mm -hmm. um <laughs> brian's escape escape from the mutant drill bullets mm -hmm. um how Douglock gets finally you know detached from uh and reassembled and whatever you know in, in the black king's demise too so i i, I wish i kind of i want i don't know i don't want to speculate about the reasons why those writing choices were made or whatever but if it if it was that the story needed you know 12 more pages or something like that got rushed mm. i'm not sure but i would like to have seen more of those those things kind of conclusively dealt with on the page so i wasn't unsure about what exactly happened in these yeah. things so i mean so overall i really like this story i like i think what what mav said earlier too about seeing ellis get better as a writer as the series goes along i think you, you really do see that in this issue he really does seem to have the characters down in this issue in a way that he might not have had earlier on you see why i think you see also why he added certain characters to the lineup that you know that came earlier so this does feel like a logical you know like flow of plot from uh from issue 83 to here yeah i don't disagree with any of that i think that there are a lot of good character moments in this issue and a lot mm -hmm. of frustrating plot dangling bits mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> anyway andrew let me grab some first impressions for you because we haven't heard you much on this podcast yet how are you feeling about this issue i don't like it um <laughs> I, I agree with everything andy said like that there's stuff to my I, I agree with what you said anna too there's some really good um little bits of scripting here and there character beats and stuff like that to me maybe related to what andy was saying i, I find the plot inherently reparative it's like he didn't know how to get it to this point and it doesn't culminate well. So you have to tie things off really, really quickly. Again, the conflict with Scratch is literally they see him out the window running out of a building and Pete <laughs> jumps out of the airplane to fight him. You know what I mean? Like, like why is the Hellfire Club here? Why is Black Air here? Why is this not just a Margali story? Uh, we have this brood thing from Dream Nails. That's really cool. It's resolved in one panel of Megan yeah. saying, I got this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I find that really frustrating. Again, I think he was 
is rushed. I, I think there's no other way to um, um, really kind of justify this. And because it's issue 100, I want it to culminate so badly. Like I, I want everything to come together perfectly. And it just doesn't for me. But the cover is beautiful and it's all downhill from there. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I think Andy was last here for number 50. And, you know, right. in terms of culminations, like, you know, we had the team literally culminating going inside of each other as we talked about in depth we had like big rachel moments there was a lot of sort of character culmination there i think compared to that issue this one doesn't look good but at the yeah. same time i was also thinking of some of the combos we had there about like what do we expect from an anniversary issue right we expect it to right. be big we expect bang for our buck we expect it to be worth the increased cover price you know it's a big double-sized issue and on that level this issue kind of pleased me i was like there's a lot here like if i bought this comic i would read it 10 times yeah. i had to read it like four times for this podcast to try to figure out everything that happened so in that sense i think it achieves its mission there's a lot here but does it all work no but there's some moments anyway matt how are you feeling about it there is so much comic here there is so much so comic. much <laughs> um andy made the comment that you know you 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 don't want to speculate about what happened i do <laughs> i would like to speculate about that this has got to be editorial pushback because I agree with everything everyone has said. I actually like a lot of what's here. And then so much of it just leaves me so confused. And yeah. I feel like a lot of that is because, you know, this will tie into onslaught, onslaught so help me God. Like, that feels mm -hmm, like that yeah. decision was made. I don't know why. Like, literally, the X-Men show up, pick something up and leave they don't interact with well i mean if you consider moira to be part of excalibur then fine but for the most part you know they sort of see amanda and then there and then moira's like can you watch after her but i guess they didn't because they're the x-men and they don't give a fuck about excalibur like that's it <laughs> like yeah. like literally that's the problem they don't care so they don't watch after her because the next time we see amanda she has teleported away you know on her dying breath because like mm -hmm. psylocke didn't actually watch her psylocke and i can't i can't even remember which ones i think psylocke and, and warren but maybe not so. maybe it was yeah it, like a couple of them were you supposed know? to watch her and then they didn't because we don't see it and we just she's just gone and i feel like what happened was they were they were offered 40 pages for this book they being um being ellis and his art team because there's a there's a this is definitely a mini hands kind of issue right they were offered 40 pages to get stuff done and then I feel like Ellis probably wrote a 40 page story and then handed it in and then yeah. either Gaffney or Harris. I don't know if it was a chief situation because, you know, it, it's a group editing world or or Susan Gaffney, who was just the editor. Like one of them looked at this and said, no, 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 this needs to set up the Xavier protocols, which are going to be part of Onslaught. And somebody said, Onslaught, what's that? It's, it's the crossover, but you've got to be a part of it. So you're going to be here. And, you know, Onslaught kicks off in totality next month or this month and next month. But spoilers for next issue, Excalibur doesn't matter. Much like everything else, they don't matter. It, it It is irrelevant to the Onslaught event. If you are listening to our podcast and you've not read the Onslaught event, don't bother. It's not going to help you or hurt you for the rest of this show. Because like it's you'll learn great. every – because it doesn't matter, right? It, it doesn't <laughs> matter 
other than the fact that they're just sort of mandated to be here. And I think every problem I have with this issue can be tied to that. There's a lot that I love about it, but every problem I have with it is why did that happen? Why didn't I see, you know, I actually care about the story with Margali. I would like to see yeah. how it worked, but I don't get to, you know, I care about Amanda. I care about Megan. Megan disappears in the middle of this book. She's not in the end. Maybe she died. I don't know. <laughs> like, because the book, the book just forgets about her because it's got to devote time to, you know, Jean Grey having a moment because, you know, it's not like she doesn't have three other books that she could be she could be appearing in right now right it's yeah. weird it, it is weird that this happens in this issue and it like the resolution of it since we've already done the plot resolution you've already done the plot summary the resolution of it on those last two pages feels like oh crap we've gone through 38 pages we only have two left just finish this off it's just like a and everything was fine is how is how the story ends and it's there's so much of that here I don't know why Colossus is on this mission. This story is clearly written so that everybody gets a chance to shine, except that Peter doesn't because they forgot. Peter does nothing in the story. He's just there. Um, He's He's literally a shield at one point. That's it. Yeah, at one point. But he doesn't doesn't get his own little side mission, and then he's gone, and then he's back again at the end. But Megan's not, and you don't know. Like, Brian, does he join back up with the rest of the team? I know he does because I've read 101, but we don't see it here. Like, Brian, as far as we can tell, they don't even know Brian's here. They, I mean, they know he's here. They're looking for him, but they never see him in this story. All of it's weird. How do they get Doug Locke back? Because they're not carrying his head at the end. They like, 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 there's so much of it that just feels rushed and i i don't understand why those decisions were made in order to support a crossover that this team is not going to get to be a part of they're never actually going to go there to the crossover and i you know i'll have details about my problems with the xavier protocols overall but like even in the context of the story if you think this is a good idea this feels like something that he was forced to do because of the way that he doesn't even bother to make the characters that he was forced to use interact with his own characters they never see each other kurt has no way of knowing that scott and team ever even showed up so i feel like mav you i appreciate you giving me permission then to start speculating on what could have caused (laughs) these these issues because i think it's what you described but there there are probably other other thing factors as well in the letter pages of previous issues we were promised that pacheco was going to draw this issue and he did not and and he didn't and so was it you know how how late in the game was it determined that he wasn't going to be able to do that Right. Yeah, um, he had to draw the last two issues of Fantastic Four. That's where he right, went. Right, right. And the second thing is, is that I get the sense that Ellis was going to leave at issue 103 no matter what. And because he liked, as we see later in his career, he liked those nice even number runs of, you know, 20, 30, 40 issues or whatever, or 25. And so he had given himself 20 issues and realized he had to kind of wrap a bunch of this stuff up and still get whatever he needed to do done in the last in the last three issues. So I think all those, then you, you combine that with some, maybe some kind of editorial mandate that you describe about shoehorning Onslaught in. And uh, especially because also we see in an earlier issue that Onslaught is somehow connected to the Red Queen and then that doesn't factor in. But <laughs> Sure she is, right. <laughs> yeah. and, and so that that's not that's left left dangling too, I just realized mm-hmm. when you were talking. You know, was that 
you know, was that the thing that pushed Ellis out because editorial interference we see again later in his career being a thing that that he really rankles against too mm-hmm. that leads leads him into wanting to you know do the creator own stuff yeah well i mean like mav saying you know like <laughs> they're told they'll have 40 pages but then five of them get taken away to tell a right. different story that's not related wonder, to the story and then right. like and were those it's the just such an pages? odd issue yeah <laughs> and like it's yeah. such an odd story too in terms of the repetition of the villains like mm-hmm. rereading these comics for the podcast i thought they were fighting onslaught in this issue and then i was like Don't oh lie. no no it's, it's just a, different a whole person. other <laughs> yeah, yeah which has the same <laughs> effect on people as onslaught it's so yeah. baffling yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I mean, like, I, I, I feel like probably early on is like you will cross over with onslaught and then that didn't work out right so they were like okay you're not so he's like well i already wrote the story so it's a devil okay <laughs> like because like, like who is this devil demon character i don't know never came up before it's not coming back like i mean it's related to the margali story but the margali story is over without much um you know reasoning or like it it, it just feels very short change here's everything that i think you need to know about the bad parts about this issue pete wisdom can fly now (laughs) i don't know how it's so gross (laughs) yeah pete wisdom can apparently fly but only for this issue because he won't be able to fly again and it's just like it's just it's just conveniently (laughs) speaking pete wisdom can fly in this issue by shooting his hot knives at the ground and you know giving himself some buoyancy and presumably killing anybody who happened to be walking underneath him because you know like so much of this is questionable and it's just because we need him to be able to get to the ground and i wasn't (laughs) able to get like like it it feels like you know if we could have had 46 pages then we might have had megan drop him off but we don't we have 40 pages so he's just gonna jump out the window and fly and don't worry about it and I have to be subjected to an image of like Pete Wisdom suspended in air with like marionette hot dog fingers. Like, why yeah. do I have to see yeah. this? Exactly. <laughs> I know. In anyway, defense and- of that moment, though, I think that I mean everybody acknowledges that it's really dangerous for him to mm-hmm. do this. And you know, I think it would be it might be better if we do see him like mm-hmm. hurt his leg really bad when he lands or something like that. Even though he does hurt his yeah. leg later. It, I mean, it's it's mentioned that this is not a good idea to do this sure the fact that he never does it again might be enough to uh you know justify that yeah i tried that worked out fine though it worked out fine (laughs) it was just like oh yeah superhero logic though you can always lift the heavy thing when you have to lift the heavy thing and you can't do it the next he didn't have to they (laughs) they could have just landed the plane they land the they they land the plane like two pages later (laughs) like it's literally like i'm gonna go off after him by myself then they're like all right pete's gone so what are we gonna do well we're gonna land the plane and we're gonna go after the other bad guys like okay like he could have waited 30 seconds it didn't (laughs) you know Uh And maybe not Same location. It it makes no it makes no difference other than the fact that he wanted to try this power stunt for reasons. It's weird. It's a weird play for what is in other ways a much better comic. Like I I didn't like the I didn't love the last couple because they felt poorly paced. This is moving at a breakneck pace, even though it's double space double size, and like it feels like some of this could have been moved off into the previous issue or you know maybe x-men gold you know like just like 
away from this, right? Like, like some well, of it just. I, I would argue that there's some stuff in there that should have been in previous issues, like the the Amanda scene where she yeah. talks about how she fought Margali. That belongs yeah. in one or two issues ago, very yes. clearly. And but but instead, she's you know she kills herself getting to Mer Island, and then. Yeah. Flashback. We, we haven't seen her. We haven't seen her in months. And then she's just like, "Oh yeah, I was I was hurt, but I'm better now because I'm gonna go teleport and win the fight for everybody." It's a weird pacing issue. I'll, I'll give you another example with Kurt. Kurt does the same thing where they come. You know, Kurt's like, "Oh, it's a guy with the sword." Kitty, phase rain, and you guys go finish the mission. We won't see it, but please go do that. And I'm going to stay here and fight this guy with the sword. Why? Kitty can phase you. Kurt just wanted to be in a sword fight. (laughs) Yeah, Kurt just wants to be in a sword fight, and that's what we get to see. And it's a weird, it's a weirdness about that story. And I don't, I like seeing Kurt fight fight with the sword, though I do think it's questionable that he just he straight like stabs a guy and then complains about him stabbing somebody a page later. Like there's some weirdnesses to that story. But like, can I just can I just mention with the Kurt sword fight how weird it is that he's having the exchange with the guy who's talking about he's fighting him because he's madly in love and everything. It's like it's with Kurt's mom. <laughs> like that like, is not it's like Kurt's making fun of this guy for being in love with someone and it's his mom and we yeah. never get that played out but <laughs> she's yeah. just funny well, but anyway but also again Kurt's like, oh, you're in love, so you're stabbing people? Kurt stabbed him already. It's th- This fight starts <laughs> with Kurt just straight trying to cut off this dude's arm, which is, you know, very Logan, not very Kurt. I want to defend that that sword fight, too, because I think what, what I got from it was Kurt sees a sword, and he's like, uh, Kitty, you take rain, you go in there. I'm having a sword fight. I don't yeah. get to have sword yeah. fights very often. This is my time. Okay, then you're a bad leader. I mean, yes, <laughs> it is. His, it is. His, yeah, give me this moment. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I am. I am going to defend both the Kurt sword fight and the Pete Wisdom plane thing because I don't know. I think both of those things speak to character, and it's not that they're making the yeah. right choices; they're making character consistent choices. Because I haven't sure. always liked the way that Warren Ellis has written Kurt. Okay, this is pretty fair. much how Alan Davis would have written Kurt. <laughs> so, like, I don't think it's out of step with how he's so behaved in the past. So, but like, we're saying thing too. Yeah. Like, I think. Pete's recklessness there, but I also think Pete embracing his powers to go after Scratch is important given the disavowal of Pete's powers. So I would defend it a little bit narratively that way, even though I think the visual is really dumb. And yeah, so like think, the Kurt thing. Yeah. You're saying this is the this is the equivalent of throwing the Rachel mannequin into the fire and crossing your fingers? Is that what you're arguing? I mean... Because that is a thing that Kurt <laughs> did, right? It's like, hey... I don't know how magic works. Maybe, maybe fire. Sure. I mean, that's not out of character for Kurt, but you know, I think that there's a tonal weirdness in this issue between, there's a lot of slapstick jokes in this issue for a comic in which (laughs) we're going to find out like 300,000 Londoners were killed. 500,000. Oh, (laughs) even worse. So that's (laughs) weirdness, but at the same time, like, those Kurt sword fight pages are vintage Kurt though. Like, I mean, it reminds me of Kurt in the cross time caper, you know, being like, this is everything yeah. I've ever dreamed of getting to have a sword yeah. fight with this guy. And I'm like, sure. So I can accept it on that level. <laughs> Was it a good yeah. choice? No. Was it a Kurt choice? Yes. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> yep. Thank you. <laughs> um, I have like a bunch of other stuff I want us to hit on, but uh, 
do we want to talk about the Xavier protocols just briefly? Yes, and then briefly. I think I want to maybe close <laughs> on some more positive stuff because I want us to talk about some of the character moments we did like here. And we did just hit on a couple, so that's great. But I want to come back to it at the end, maybe. But with the Xavier protocols, I did think it was important for us to talk about it just briefly in terms of how it relates to Xavier's character, because this is an important element of the way the character is being presented in ways that are actually mm-hmm. still quite relevant to the current comics and kind yes. of some of his nefarious dealings even being in league with Moira in the current comics and it's strange how relevant some of this actually is to the current era so maybe I'll come to you with it first Andy like do you see this Xavier Protocols thing this revelation that he has these plans to disable the other X-Men including himself is this something that interests you about the development of Xavier as a character Uh, I mean I had the exact same reaction that that you described there of reading that and thinking you know wow wow this this seems like a thread that you know that Hickman picked up on mm. uh, in the in in the current run. I'm also I'm, but but I'm also surprised that Hickman didn't pick up on the legacy virus situation with Moira and say, oh, mm. she got she's not she's not human, so she could get the legacy virus, um, or she you know she is a mutant, she could get the legacy virus as, as he reveals later. But um, you know I, I like this when you know Mark Wade does this later in that Justice yeah. League Babel story line i think it gets overdone now Mm -hmm. um i think we've seen too many times where for example batman has some you know has some plan for how to take down the rest rest of the justice league scott snyder did it and and so on Mm -hmm. so but it is it is one of those things that hooks me I wonder. I'm. I'm. I'm curious about what you all think about how how the mechanics of the the Xavier protocols work because it seems yes. like because Stupid. because it's insane. Gene and Scott and Moira are in the room that activates the the yeah. protocol for defeating Xavier. But once Warren enters the room, then that triggers Wolverine. Is that, am I reading that right? That is what happened and it is insanity. It is, it is insanity. It is, it is. Can I just say quickly, the thing thing that I thought that happened was that the protocols were getting revealed to Jean and Scott and Moira. And then when Warren came in, they were like, oh, shut it down. It's Warren. We can't trust Warren. (laughs) That's what I thought originally happened. And then I'm like, oh, no, no, it's what you said. It's like, then the Wolverine plans come out there. Only those three would survive if Wolverine went rogue. That's logic. Yeah. Yeah. It's. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I love Tower of Babel. Tower okay. of Babel is a great story. The animated version, Justice League Doom, is a great yeah. story. It yeah. is Both of them are very well written. There is a way to do this story. And there's a way to do it with Xavier because I think Professor Xavier is a jerk. <laughs> like, Kitty was right. In that situation, she was wrong. But overall, Kitty was right. <laughs> like, Professor X is a jerk. And of course, he has Batman protocols to kill every X-Man, including himself. Like nothing else makes sense of naturally he does that I'm fine with the implementation of it in this comic is insane. First off, I, I want to see that because I think it's an, I think it is a, and you touched on this briefly. It is an important aspect of Xavier's character that we are exploring here. And that is very, very interesting. 
or it would be if this were a book starring Charles Xavier. It's not. He's not. A, he's not. He's not even a secondary character in this book. He's been there, but not in several issues. Like he doesn't matter to this storyline. So that would be so much stronger if it were in Uncanny X Men or Adjectiveless X Men as they were at this time, right? Like it would have been a stronger argument if it showed up even in X Factor at the time. If like forge it discovered the xavier protocols any of this makes more sense than doing next caliber where they're so far removed from the world of the x-men except that they just keep reminding you there and then the logic of how it works like i guess we're supposed to believe that if there were only three x-men left scott gene and moira that must have meant it was Professor X. But if Warren's also alive, oh, well, that's Wolverine because Wolverine could have killed everybody except for these three and Warren, whereas I could have killed Wolverine and Warren and Warren. Like the logic of that he's going through. And then with each, you know, each combination of like, what if he's wrong? Like, <laughs> like, the, like none of it makes sense. And also it's going to come up next issue too. Like I, I know that, but what he's doing is weird and it's an unforced error because i don't need to know that all i need to know is the worst has happened and chuck trusts moira to call up any protocol mm -hmm. like that that's the easy way to do it like doing it with this weird thing where oh warren has walked into the room so even though i'm halfway through explaining the psionic armor we're gonna reboot and start the wolverine protocol so yeah i so i'm gonna push back a little bit or disagree a little bit because i do i do think it, it does make sense that this thing's on mirror island and that moira is in charge of it or whatever even though she doesn't know what it is sure that, but it would be so much more effective if maybe the x-men showed up uh said you know we've got to find this this thing and then we get a caption that says if you want to know what they find see adjectiveless x-men whatever mm -hmm. or yeah like that that not give the five pages of this right. in this book I have no problem with Moira being involved. I have a problem with it appearing in this book yeah. where he's not relevant. And spoilers, he's not going to be, right? Like, I know what happens in the Onslaught. This is not a callback that's going to matter. Professor Xavier's characterization and whether he's capable of that is ultimately irrelevant to the story we're telling here. And it is very relevant to the story that's happening concurrently in the other books. So put it there. Like, it makes more sense to have Moira guest star there to ha than it does to have them guest star here for more than, you know, one page. You know, give them one page and then say, see X-Men number whatever, editor Suzanne. Like, that's the way to yeah, do this. Yeah, but th that's not the marketing way to do it, though, right? That they want to yeah. have a little note in the other books that says, for that story, you have to go read Excalibur 100. But you so don't. I, I, it's comics, right? That's all <laughs> yeah, it's no, I get it. I get it. But you don't. But, like, if you were, if you were going the other way, you don't get enough of that here to be be satisfying if i'm an x-men fan and i had yeah, to read later. this in order just to get a bunch of nothing like nothing happened here that is relevant to me if i'm just reading the core x books like so yeah but doesn't... they're trying to do I... that though they're just failing. yeah and yeah yeah and that's I, my problem. I guarantee i guarantee the sales were better because it had the onslaught tag on the cover yep sure, and sure. i guarantee that's all they kind of cared about <laughs> yep yeah i just it could have been done so much better it, yeah, it is yeah. it's oh, yeah. sloppy yeah oh agreed. no disagreement there mm -hmm. no disagreement there at all it's just like you know we keep talking about how this book is like kind of like you know <laughs> a lost leader the in the x-men line yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i yeah. mean i get it i get it mm -hmm. but 
I think that's enough on Xavier protocols. Uh, I don't yeah. really want to talk about it more it's than all that. all you get. But, um, <laughs> go read Tower yeah. of Babel. That's my... Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, go read Tower of Babel. It's really good. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm tempted to be like, this is part of the issues I had with some of the stuff in the modern era because, you know, they already know Xavier's like this and then they always act surprised <laughs> when he's like this. But, you know, that's just serialized comics. I have to accept that some things yeah. sort of happened or didn't happen. It's fine. Whatever. Um. Anyway, let's talk about some more of the character climax moments because we brought this up and we already talked about a couple of them we talked about the pete one we talked about the kurt one a little bit but there's some more stuff with kurt i want to talk about in terms of his leadership as well but i thought i'd go around and give us each a chance to talk about some of the ones that did work for us because ostensibly we got some big hero moments for various characters here that extend from character and live up to this being a centenary ish centennial issue so let's talk about that a little bit so andy were there any were there any of these sort of climactic character moments that particularly worked or or didn't work for you that you would like to sound off on a little more i mean the the one the one that worked best for me i think was brian's getting brian to return mm. back to being yeah. captain britain because mm. i hated britannic yeah. What? they didn't even seem to know how to spell it consistently yeah i yeah. always spell it wrong in the outline does it well there's no right way to spell it it's spelled with one n or two n's inconsistently throughout but anyway but that moment and this is a good this is also a good warren ellis moment too where you know he punches mount joy and says don't bleed so loud you're giving me a headache and there's another line about how he's not you know he's not enjoying this honestly or whatever that you know that that he does love being captain britain in the end and that that kind of restoration of the character i really like i agree with what uh what mav said earlier it would be nice to have him reunite with the team then after this and have them <laughs> kind of celebrate the fact that he's back to being captain britain uh but instead they celebrate the fact that pete wisdom gets to smoke again um, <laughs> and um and that seems to be the that climactic, like the the freeze frame in the final shot of the nineteen seventy sitcom. Um, yeah. But um. Uh. But yeah. So yeah. So Brian's is is uh is my favorite. I mean, if you have to choose between Brian Braddock and a Marlboro, which way do you go? Dance <laughs> <laughs> <those> together. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> andrew did you have a, a character climax moment that you wanted to talk about yeah i'm, I'm having issues with amanda sefton as a character who i, I love mm -hmm. who keeps getting neglected and i accept that she's being neglected and i give up on her and then they give her a cool moment or two and i'm like right back yeah. on board mm -hmm. i really love the jump again scene uh just talking about how like it's, it's a total spider-man pushing up the machinery scene yep uh, but you don't often get it for a female character, particularly like a, like a magically inflected female character, those sheer will moments. I thought it was really well done here. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it, it was, I don't know. Uh, I'm back on board with Amanda Sefton again because of that one scene at random. Just as Kurt technically stole her costume since she was the one that wore his, <laughs> his costume first in the circus in an issue that we're actually going to get to soon. <laughs> Kurt also steals that teleportation scene in his lead up to his death in Second Coming. They kind of do the same right. thing with him in that one. But Amanda did it first. But yeah, I liked that for Amanda too. I uh, I am probably doing a Cerebro episode about Amanda some time in the coming month. But one of the things that I keep thinking about with that character is the way so much of her story happens off panel, which is like... 
<laughs> I can see being a thing that draws people to the character in almost a cultish way because she clearly has this entire story and history and context that completely exists off panel and just gets alluded to in these little select badass moments that she gets intermittently over the years like she has here because man she had this whole battle with like Margali and probably demons and like who knows what else like on her <laughs> way here <laughs> and she actually just <laughs> stepped in and saved the entire city and potentially the entire world and like that's pretty cool and like <laughs> good for her <laughs> it would have been nice if we saw some of the lead up to that but you know I did like the yeah. teleport scene as well we had Mount Joy to talk about Anna I know I know <laughs> I know. How about you, Mav? Was there a character climax moment that you enjoyed? Yes, Pete Wisdom. Uh, okay. <laughs> prior, yes, prior to his I can fly now, which, okay, that I didn't care for. What I did, I mean, what I did like is his line right before that, where this is, and this is perfect character building, where he says, Kitty kisses him goodbye. And she says, you're still not, now, I don't like Kitty here, though it's like, you're still not 100% healed from the accident with Colossus. That was no accident. You know that. But, <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. but, yeah, but know. maybe, but, but, I, but I'm actually willing to okay this because this is a 19, 20 year old woman trying to reconcile that like her ex-boyfriend tried to kill her current boyfriend and she loves them both and she's gotta she's in order to cope she's got to delude herself fine so I, i'm giving myself an out for kitty here but what i love is his line you stay behind colossus when you go in there let him get killed first and then keep close to kurt for a teleport out love it that is everything that i need to know about pete wisdom as a character and how he sees his relationship with Kitty. He knows that she's capable. He knows that she is a ninja. He knows she's been a superhero since she was 13 years old, but he doesn't care. He loves her. And he's like, you know what? If the other Peter gets killed, that's fine. You know, that asshole tried to kill me. Yeah, so <laughs> sure. Like I, like I, it seems silly, but like that little detail is just like, he understands that he has to work with Pete Rasputin. And in his mind, the most important thing that Pete Rasputin can possibly do you know if you take a, bu a bullet for kitty that's great <laughs> like that's how he sees it and it's like and if he dies he dies and you know what pete rasputin tried to kill him knowing nothing about him so that is a completely reasonable response from pete wisdom as far as i'm concerned yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. how he should feel i liked it Aww. well mine is gonna be a little snapshot of Kurt's leadership because it's one of my favorite leadership moments for Kurt and it's when he gives the little speech before they jump into the scene and I'm going to read some of the speech because I think it's actually really really good and honestly it's one of my one of my favorite Nightcrawler scenes so this is the scene where he's perched up on the chair looking down at everybody and he gives a little speech and he says this is one of the stupider stunts we've ever attempted but also one of the most important the vital thing is not to treat this as if it were war they will be down there if any of them are still sane after what's happened here but they are criminals and that is how we will deal with them we're not soldiers we're just people doing the best we can and then jumping ahead a little bit please all of you be careful you are all my friends <laughs> even for damned wisdom <laughs> and i want us all to go home together 
And it's so cute. Like I think about the speech that you would get from like a Cyclops or a different type of leader, right? And that speech would be much more sort of authoritative and plan oriented. And Kurt's speech is like, please be nice to everybody. Don't hurt anybody because it's not their fault. I really love all of you. So please come back safely. <laughs> and just, it's so good. Like we talked so much earlier in the pod about kind of his empathetic leadership and stuff. And again, I haven't always loved the way Warren Ellis has written Kurt, but I think he did him right in this speech. And it's one of my favorite little Kurt leadership moments. Slightly undercut by the fact that the first thing Kurt does when he gets down there is stab a man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't do hurt anybody. Hey, not as he does. <laughs> Um, all right, let's just do, I know I got everybody a chance to, to do a thought there, but final thoughts, because it can be about something else now. We'll go around one more time. Just like anything from this issue that we didn't get a chance to talk about, we'll do some rapid fire final thoughts to close it off. It's a double-sized issue. <laughs> we got to give it its due. Come back to you, Andrew. Anything that you want to circle back to? Just sort of gaslighting myself. When I first read this plot, I was very confused. And I noted that the exposition at the intro is extensive. Like mm. I haven't seen that much opening exposition since like Lee Kirby era, uh, a lot. Um, and I was still really confused in, in a lot of the things that were happening this issue. I need to be reminded constantly. And I started to think to myself, you know, maybe I'm an idiot kind of thing. And then I thought about it and I'm like, I, I have a PhD in English language and literature. <laughs> and I've read all of the Excaliburs. <laughs> And I co-host a podcast on Excalibur. If I can't grasp what's happening in this issue of Excalibur, that really is on the writer. So yeah. I kind of kind of turned on Ellis a little bit further after my <laughs> self-emulation, I guess. That's fair. <laughs> Again, yeah, I, read I always, this I always so say to myself, like, I did my PhD in modernist <laughs> literature. I've studied James <laughs> Joyce. Um, I've read Finnegan's Wake Yeesh. and understood it. <laughs> I, if, I can't, if I can't understand a comic, it's not on me. Yeah. How about you, Mav? Anything you want to bring up or circle back to? Yes. This has one of my, my least favorite things that happens in any international comic. It is the, the very American-centric view of the world, which is, you know, if the Hellfire Club gets away with this, they can beat anybody, even the Americans. I know, I know. Uh, I, I, okay, I, I get that this is the primary audience that this comic's being written for. It's being written from a very American context. And this is, um, Claremont had this problem too on occasion, not nearly as bad or egregious as this. It's a, uh, other countries don't care. Okay, I, I, and I, I know that Andrew and uh, and Anna are not Americans, but other countries don't care about us as much as we think they do. This whole <laughs> leaders of the free world, center of the universe thing, we made that up. Nobody <laughs> voted for it. <laughs> like no, nobody voted America leaders of the free world. People in other countries don't talk like that. We've got to be careful because they might end up going after the Americans. <laughs> what it's 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 just one of those weird things that always takes me out of a book that was my why is this being said yeah. <laughs> i've been having a lot of communication <laughs> conversations lately with with adam about just silly little things like that like he started to communicate the weather to me in celsius which i feel like is a real <laughs> sign of affection because i have no idea what fahrenheit you mean is, meaningless but... numbers <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we did this uh, we did this uh, that happened on this show once 
Uh, I said, I, 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 don't, I don't remember. Exactly oh, I know. We had an extensive numbers. conversation about yeah. temperature on this show on a previous occasion. I know. Yeah, there I was remember. A, there was a point where, where, where you guys, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, it's like 95 degrees out here. And you're like, that sounds hot, maybe? And I'm like, okay, yeah. You know, <laughs> large number? No I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, how can we even have conversations with each other? I mean, like miles, Fahrenheit. I don't know what any of this is. What are yards? <laughs> Who knows? What are gallons? I don't know how much gas costs um, <laughs> a lot it costs a lot <laughs> i'm pretty sure it costs more here but i'm not totally oh. sure but... can i can i add on to that just as it's oh, not no. very common but i'm just very proud of it no this is this is short um okay. i recently bought if you follow me on on instagram uh, i don't know if i said it on twitter i certainly said it on instagram and facebook i bought a new car recently i have a plug-in Ooh. hybrid uh, I, I have a plug-in hybrid suv that i love because i had to run some errands today for you know my house as i said i've been doing doing a lot of work so i drove 27 miles today and used zero gallons of gasoline i was very nice. proud of myself it was it's just great it's like oh i have exactly as much gas when i got home as i did when i left awesome i don't know <laughs> what the cool. miles means but the zero it, gallon sounds good it doesn't matter that's the that's the point <laughs> like like i drove for a while you could do miles or kilometers <laughs> gallons liters it doesn't matter i drove used no gas it was it was great <laughs> proud of you, you know, I, I, I went to ICAF in Vancouver, you know, a, few, uh, a couple months ago, and I drove with a friend from Seattle to Vancouver, and our car automatically switched from miles to kilometers when we oh, crossed the border. So cool! And I thought, like, I'm living in the future because I because I started to see the you know speed limit sign changes. Like, how am I going to know what that is? 110 baby <laughs> and and then suddenly like my the speedometer on the car just switched over to kilometers That's so cool you're right i should just be running google translate anytime i talk to my american boyfriend just really clear up any disagreements um my final thought yeah my final, new jersey to ontario translation um my my final thought was just going to be briefly and i think we'll talk about this more on a, a future episode because i know we're going to have at least another artist on the pod soon who I'm sure will have thoughts about it but we talked so much about the sexualization of Nightcrawler's costume a couple of issues ago when Pacheco introduced it and we haven't had Pacheco drawing it since then and in this issue where we have like all the different artists working on it you totally get how some people might not have perceived it as being as sexual as we perceived it in number 98 based on That's how right. it's drawn here yes. and it's just funny in terms of the conversation we had there because I talked about they got away with this because of the inbuilt disavowal of sexuality in this space and you can see artists here disavowing that they're like well that's not mm -hmm. how it's supposed to be right like the shoulder the shoulder things are like armor right it's not just a strip of fabric right it's like no it's a strip of fabric but like some of these artists like render it as like shoulder pad armor because they just can't <laughs> get their heads mm -hmm. around this is what it is and i just found that interesting and again i think that we'll return to to the costume in some future discussions but just wanted to signpost it here i am going to come back to you andy for some final final thoughts about this one anything you want to circle back to or bring up or <laughs> elucidate to wrap up our discussion of this issue a couple things i'm just when mav mentioned the thing about uh, the americans it that's especially jarring for ellis because in so much of his later work he'll slag off on that attitude mm-hmm 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, Jenny Sparks will constantly yes. be making cracks about that. And so, yeah, so that's, that's an, it, it feels especially odd again, in retrospect, seeing that, you know, I had, I had more to say about, about the art, Please. about like Casey Jones's art. I remember being, you know, being kind of jarred by the transition from Pacheco being excited about Pacheco being on the mm -hmm. book to Casey Jones, coming back to Casey Jones again. But there, there are things I really like about his art in this issue, and there's things that I didn't on, in the latter category. I kind of wish, and I think this would have this would have helped with a lot of things where we've been criticizing in this issue. If there'd been more of a sense of like a an establishing shot of just how bad the destruction in London is. Mm, like I never yeah, get a visual yeah. sense of what what's going on there. It's only in the caption boxes that that's really there, and that's that's not particularly effective. But you know, there are moments with, especially again, that moment I mentioned with uh, with Brian, that I just re I really love the way he drew that, and and there's certain characters uh, and his approach to their their costumes that I like better than I've seen in in other other artists on the series. And I really, I really like for the most part, the way he draws Pete Wisdom. Mm -hmm. And um, except for the, the fight between Pete Wisdom and Scratch is just so weirdly distorted with their really, really long legs and stuff mm -hmm. that they have that doesn't fit with the rest of the issue. But otherwise, reading it this time, I feel like I liked his art better in places than I remembered liking it. There were still issue, issues I had with it. Yeah, it had me thinking a lot about there's that hashtag comics broke me thing going on right now, a time of recording where people are sharing their different horror stories. And a lot of the conversations been about timing and page rates and all of that stuff. And you think yeah. about how annoyed we get as readers when you're like, oh, Pacheco was going to be on this book. I was so excited for him. And yet we've had Casey Jones doing the issues because, hey, guess what? Casey Jones is turning in issues on time. And yeah. Yeah. then, you know, we have these complaints about the art. And I just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we're right to complain about that that's what we do as critics and readers and that's the kind of conversation we have on this show and totally the same like there's some pages of this that i really liked there's clearly some pages that are really rushed especially when we get the artists filling in for jones who's already filling in for pacheco it's another one yeah. of those issues and yet like i don't know i just wish comics artists had more time i wish they had more time and i wish they got paid better <laughs> and that's just, just not as thing much time as like forever. john cassidy on um, <laughs> on planetary got yeah yeah anyway um did i did i interrupt other final thoughts that you had andy or was was talking no about no that's that that's that's it and yeah i yeah i do I'm, i appreciate that you kind of you, you kind of footnoted it with this understanding of the conditions that artists work under yeah it's tough right i just i wish that because <laughs> it's like it benefits everybody right if artists had more time they got paid better i get better comics it seems like a win-win let's get this done comics yeah. industry <laughs> Yeah, and I wonder if that's, you know, how how many anniversary issues and kind of wrapping up the anniversary issue idea there are that are kind of ultimately compromised because it's a longer book that has to be completed in the same amount of time roughly as mm -hmm. as you know a 23 page or 22 page comic and you know how some of the great anniversary issues that i can think of in my head detective comics 500 or justice league of america 200 are great because there are multiple artists working on it who have the time to do you know a short section and be great in that section rather than trying to get a single 
artist to do it and be rushed. Yeah, and there's ways to do that, right? Like I think it's I think it's Daredevil number five hundred. You know, they bring back a lot yeah. of iconic Daredevil artists, and everybody does a section yeah. in their unique style, and you make it part of the book, right? That's part of the celebration of the issue is highlighting those different artists. So there are ways to do it. I mean, clearly they didn't have the time or kind of the wherewithal to pull that off in this particular issue, which is a shame, despite the fact that I still maintain we got a lot of comic here, and I gotta yes. say that in its favor. <laughs> My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day, the king will come, and the sword will rise again. Uh, feels like a good place to leave things. Um, so we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Andy, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. I'm so happy that we have made it to number 100 for you to come yeah. back. I cannot Anybody believe that we've been around for... Which doesn't yeah, it's <laughs> not going to be a 150. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe you want to come back for the wedding issue. We got some nice art on that one, at least. <laughs> even if the story leaves something to be desired. But I'm getting so far ahead of ourselves and wallowing in existential dread. Let's stop doing that and give you a chance to remind our lovely listeners of all the wonderful things you get up to if you would like folks to find you anywhere online tell them where they can find you and what books or project past present or future would you like folks to check out well i'm not i'm not super active on social media i have a twitter account but i only check it if somebody adds me rather than yeah, um, fair. <laughs> be contributing anything to it. So um, to plug a couple things, I guess um, you mentioned my autobiographical comics book in my um, uh, Howard Cruz book at the beginning. But if anybody's going to San Diego Comic-Con this year, uh, I'm doing a panel there on the Norton Critical Edition of Will Eisner's A Contract with mm. God. I have an Ooh. essay reprinted in that. Uh, Danny Fingeroth has organized it. Jared Gardner, the editor, of the edition is going to be there or is going to be participating along with Karen Green and Chris Couch. So I'm super excited uh, for that. that I think we're recording panel. this the week awesome. that, oh yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. We're recording this the week that Heroes Con is going to be. So it'll be too late for people to, to see, see me at Heroes Con. But uh, just to kind of, I guess, brag about it a little bit, I'm doing four panels there. One, I'm interviewing Don Simpson about his, uh, his unofficial conclusion of Alan Moore's 1963 project that he he didn't complete. I'm going to talk to Mike Grell about the 40th anniversary of John Sable Freelance, which is one of my all-time favorite series. And I'm going to be on uh, doing a panel with uh, John Workman and Joe Staten about the 50th anniversary of Star Reach, uh, since they both contributed to that. And then I'm doing an academic, I'm on an academic panel with a few other other people, some of whom have been on this podcast, I think, Dan Yazbek is going to be there. Oh yeah, on um, the com not not just the comics canon, but the comic scholar like talking about the idea of a comic scholarship canon as as well. So um, that sounds awesome. If anybody's if anybody had been at <laughs> uh, Heroes Con uh, after listening to this they'll have had a chance to see see one of one or more of those but unfortunately well not unfortunately because the mike grell interview is a is a bucket list interview yeah. that i've always wanted to do i've been a mike grell fan since i 
legion of superheroes when i was a little kid uh at the same time as that panel is going on chris claremont and alan davis are doing an excalibur panel um i really do wish i could go to that and maybe you know report back or something to, to you all but uh, I am going to try to get my copy of The Sword is Drawn signed. Uh, Casey Jones and Randy Green, who did art on Excalibur 100, are going to be there. So I'm definitely getting them to sign my copy of this. And then maybe I'll tell them that, that I was on this podcast talking about the issue. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> that's awesome what a great capstone for this podcast i mean we've recently gotten claremont's bre- blessing that we understood excalibur correctly so yeah <laughs> we're just gonna, <laughs> gonna just keep living in that praise but um yeah just thank you so much again andy yeah thank you enjoyed it next we barrel onward into excalibur's second century with excalibur number 101 does that make sense the second century i was like thinking I, I about mean, that it's, it's comics <laughs> sure yeah okay we, we went through a hundred so it's yeah, yeah, heading yeah. toward anyway never mind not years but okay <laughs> I, 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 I think the listeners are with us <laughs> Let's say that they are. Anyway, we will be talking about Excalibur number 101, Quiet, in which we reckon with the consequences of this month's bloodshed and all those onslaught revelations, sorta kinda. In the Ish. meantime, if you liked what you heard, I said sorta kinda. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those on the Vox Popcast YouTube channel or our own website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another stupendous centennial convo. Thank you, Andy, for celebrating the centenary with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. I wish it was like our 100th episode, which would make it more grandiose, but it's like 112 or something. (laughs) We've been podcasting about Excalibur for approximately a million hours.